Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 2. Maybe they're there already. We're in the midst of an exposition of the Gospel of Mark. This Gospel is the shortest Gospel um, of all the four Gospels that we have. And it is divided nicely. It divides in half. The first half of the Gospel speaks about who Jesus is. And the second half of the Gospel speaks about what it is that Jesus has come to do. Who He is and what He will do. And there's a, there's a pivot point right there when Jesus asks His disciples, who do people say that I am? And lots of different answers. Who do you say that I am? And they say, you are the Christ. They got that right. And right after that, then he, he begins talking about what He will do. He's going to go to the cross to die and rise again. We've been four weeks, I think, in chapter 1. We've seen John the Baptist identify Jesus as the Messiah, preparing the way for the Christ. We saw the Spirit descending upon Jesus, signifying the anointing work upon the Messiah. We, saw, we heard God's voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, identifying Jesus as God's Son. We read about the preaching ministry of Jesus where He said, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. In a subtle sort of way, Jesus was proclaiming Himself to be King. The kingdom was at hand because the king was there. We even heard a demon identifying Jesus in Mark chapter 1, verse 24. The demon said, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. And all of these voices, whether it's John the Baptist or the Spirit or God the Father or Jesus or the demon, all focusing on this one question, who is Jesus? It's really what the thrust of the first half of the Gospel of, of Mark is. Last week, we finished Mark chapter 1 by, by seeing the ministry of Jesus in Capernaum. In the morning, in verse 25, I'm sorry, in the morning, in verse 21, he was in Capernaum. He was in the Sabbath, in the synagogue, ministering there. We saw him cast out a demon in the synagogue. In the afternoon, verse 31, he was in Peter's house, healing his mother in law. And by evening time, the entire city of Capernaum was at Peter's house, seeking healing. His ministry was so successful. Look at verse 45 of chapter 1. So many people came to Jesus that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in the unpopulated areas, and they were coming to Him from everywhere. So even though Jesus couldn't come into the city because the crowds of people that heard about Him would be there, He went out, but crowds of people still saw Him and still followed Him. Well, so we begin chapter 2, we find ourselves back in Capernaum. Jesus continuing his, his popular ministry, and I think he's out in the wilderness a little bit. He, he snuck incognito a little bit into uh, the home here in, in Capernaum. We find him continuing his popular ministry, but really here in chapter 2, verse 1, things are going to start to change. We are, we're headed for chapter 3, verse 6, in which it says, "...the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him." That's the, the popularity of Jesus isn't going to last very long because these people, the Pharisees and Herodians, are going to say, we need to kill that man. So they counsel together how they might kill him. And we're going to see here this morning the tide begin to change against Jesus. Jesus is going to so provoke them by what He says that they're going to start marching down that step where they want to actually kill the man. Chapter 2, verse 1. When he came, when he had come back to Capernaum, several days afterwards it was heard that he was at home. 
And many were gathered together, so there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. As I said earlier, he's back in Capernaum. Um, it says that he was at home. It says it there. Um, what, what verse is that? He, he says, boy, he was at home, right at the end of verse 1. The home is probably Peter's home, where he was before. Jesus was from Nazareth. He didn't have a home. In, in Capernaum, maybe he had one in Nazareth. I'm not exactly sure. Maybe his parents had one. I doubt Jesus owned anything in his life, save the clothes on his back. But they were at Peter's home. And, and if you look here, even the chronology here, it says when they come back several days after he was here at the home, news got out. So I think maybe he came in by the cover of night. No one knew it. He was there for a couple of days with Peter and his mother-in-law there in the home and his, Peter's wife. And all of a sudden, when people heard about it, they started coming. Caused an uproar in the city. Many gathered together is what it says there in verse 2. And in fact, so many people gathered together that they couldn't even have room, even at the door. So picture with me a house that's just jam-packed with people. Wall-to-wall people listening to what Jesus was saying because it says verse 2 that He was speaking the Word to them. And again, like much of Mark already, we don't know exactly what Jesus said but we do know that He was teaching the people and they were longing to hear Him and were crowded into this house. Now, when we come to verse 3, we, we encounter five men who wanted to see Jesus. Verse 3, And they came, bringing to Him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get Him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Him. And when they had dug an opening they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Okay, picture the scene. We're outside the house now, and these four guys, each carrying one corner of this pallet, are, are bringing along their friend who's a paralytic who can't walk. That's why he needs to be carried. And obviously, they want to see Jesus because word is spread about Jesus that He can heal. And so they want Him to have a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. He healed many others. Why not our friend and upon coming close to the door, they discovered they couldn't even get to Jesus. They, they couldn't even get to the door. There was not even room near the door. So they were trying, people were crowding in and kind of hearing uh, what Jesus was saying, and they, they couldn't get to Jesus. Now, one person might be able to get to Jesus. You've been in a crowd before, right? Lots of people around. If you're one person, you kind of squeeze your way, and depending upon how aggressive you are, you can get about anywhere you want in a crowd if you're one person. But if you're five people, Four guys carrying this other guy, you're not going to make very much progress here in this crowd. But they were determined. So they went up to the roof. It was customary of the homes that day to have an outdoor staircase up to the, the top of a roof, often a place of rest and quiet, often a place away from the bustle of the home. Sometimes they put shelters up there, little tents, and, but up they went. And they began digging through the roof. It's a strange thing here. It says here that they, they removed the roof above him and then dug an opening. Now, obviously, the roofs then are different than roofs now. It's pretty hard to dig an opening in this roof, for example. Shingles on the outside and wood, wood right here. But back then, one commentator described this roof as probably formed by beams of rafters. So he had with wooden rafters probably across which matting and branches and twigs covered by earth-trodden hard were laid. And so, so you got these rafters and then just, just kind of things on top of it to provide a roof there 
but enough so that you could probably dig into this house. And so picture not the scene outside, not, but picture the scene below. Jesus is teaching all these people. And all of a sudden, there begins to get some things falling from the ceiling. And it was probably right towards Jesus. Maybe the, maybe the dirt and stuff is falling on His head. He's got to back up. Because they didn't want to have the, the paralytic come in the back of the room. They wanted to come right where Jesus was. Pretty soon some clumps of dirt began to fall around those who were listening. And pretty soon this hand reaches through the roof, you know, as they kind of, kind of dig out. And, and everyone's probably up there, they're watching. And soon probably everyone's watching the, these people dig this big hole and enough to let a man down from the top of the roof. He's a paralytic and maybe crunched up a little bit. I'm guessing maybe two feet by four feet. Some kind of hole like that. Imagine it's just right in the, the roof of our room here. And then, Paralytic with some rope somehow got draped down. Probably this, this uh, pallet that he was on was wrapped up. Maybe they had a rope kind of cinched around it and he came down like a, a baby in a stork box that they come down and it comes and then just laid open there right before Jesus. Now this wasn't the kind of commotion that you could ignore. I know that when I'm preaching, there's disturbances of, of every sorts and kinds. There's a, a cough here and there's a, a baby crying there. Some kids sometimes drop their clipboards. Um, sometimes a cell phone goes off. Maybe a child comes up here and gets another set of, of children's notes. Maybe an adult gets up to leave to go to the restroom. And you know, when these sorts of things happen, I do my best to ignore them, which is good for me and it's good for you. Hey, look, he's going to the bathroom. Hey, see you when you come back. Hope you have a good time. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm just going to let you slip out. All right. Then you, you come back. But this is the interruption that Jesus couldn't ignore. In fact, from the time the first clump of the ceiling fell down until the time the paralytic was lowered down the ceiling, I think all eyes were on the digging process. If Jesus was trying to say, well, just ignore that happening in the roof and trying to teach, totally unsuccessful. I think everyone's looking and seeing what's happening just from the first clump. As they dig through this roof, there's this big commotion and questioning and... <clears throat> This man is laid down right in front of Jesus. What's Jesus going to do? Jesus, verse 5, says this. very first word out of his mouth. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, these weren't accidental words. They're very calculated. From the time they started digging through the ceiling... Jesus had, I'm not sure what it took, maybe five minutes, maybe ten minutes. He had all this time to really think about how he's going to respond to these people. He's watching the way they're digging. He's maybe listening to the things that they're saying. First words out of his mouth are, Son, your sins are forgiven. In verse 5, we have a clue why he said this. It's because he saw their faith. Now, we don't know how Jesus saw their faith. Maybe he heard some things about what they said. Maybe they had a discussion about that. But obviously, if you're going to go up to the top of the roof, dig a hole in Peter's house, and then plop this man down, and maybe they made a request, you're going to see that takes a lot of faith to believe that this man is going to be healed. And I think their faith was obvious, not just for Jesus, but for all to see. They all believed that Jesus could heal their friend And I just say this is the way God always works. When people put forth signs of faith, Jesus responds. That's how how it works. Chapter 5, we'll see the woman who wanted to just touch Jesus' garments. Just if I can touch the edge of His garments, I'll be made well. And to her, Jesus said, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go and be healed of your affliction. 
In chapter 7, we'll see the Syrophoenician woman who kept seeking Jesus, even amidst great obstacles, uh, great obstacles, just really believing that Jesus was the one who's going to be able to heal her daughter. And even when Jesus initially refused her, she continued to come and continued to come. And Jesus, seeing her faith, healed her daughter that day. And when there's no faith, Jesus will not heal. That's what happened when Jesus went to Nazareth. In Nazareth, the people there had no faith. It says in Mark chapter 6, 5 and 6, He could do no miracle there except He laid His hand on a few sick people and healed them. And He wondered at their unbelief. See, because God's work is, work is always linked with our faith. It's always how it is. We believe Him and trust in Him. And when Jesus saw the faith of the paralytic, the faith of His friends, He said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now with these words, a firestorm was let off at this moment. Verse 6, Some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. And the scribes were experts in the law. They knew the Torah. They knew the Old Testament. And the reason, they're thinking, why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now at this point, you've got to know that the scribes got their theology exactly right. It is exactly right that nobody can forgive except God alone. Psalm 130 says this, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who would stand? See, if God is one who would mark iniquities, I don't care what anybody else says, I don't care what anybody else does, if God marks iniquities, no one can stand. It doesn't matter... If a priest says you are forgiven, it doesn't matter if a high priest says you're forgiven. It doesn't matter if the one you're offending says you are forgiven. If God would mark iniquities, who would stand? None of us would stand because it says, but Psalm 130 verse 4, there is forgiveness with you. God is the only one who forgives. Isaiah 43:25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. I, I alone am the one who wipes out your transgressions, he told Israel. Daniel 9, to the Lord our God belongs compassion and forgiveness. They got their theology exactly right, but they got their conclusion exactly wrong. See, they said he is blaspheming. Their conclusion is this, only God can forgive, Jesus isn't God, therefore he's blaspheming. And where'd they miss it, kids? Which statement did they mess up on? Only God can forgive. Jesus isn't God, therefore He's blaspheming. Which one? Jesus isn't God. It should be, only God can forgive. Jesus forgives. He what? Must be God. That's how the reasoning should have been. Because Jesus isn't a mere man like you and me. He is the God-man. He is the God who's come into flesh Therefore, his words were not blasphemy. And the whole rest of the story really revolves around Jesus, that he has the authority to forgive sins. And that's the key here from verse 8 and following. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves. It's interesting here that Jesus knew in his spirit what was in their spirit. They didn't vocalize the things in verses five, 6 and 7. These were just in their, in their faces. They were reasoning in their hearts. I'm sure that Jesus could read faces because you can pretty much tell if Jesus said, My son, your sins are forgiven. And then if you see people who are looking like this, you pretty much detect they're not on your, you're not on your side. 
Whereas if they say your sins are forgiven and if you have an expression that goes like this, like they're marveling, they're, they're wondering. But these, these people were against Jesus. And so Jesus sets everything up to demonstrate that He indeed has the authority to forgive sins. This is my first point this morning. Jesus forgives sinners. Jesus forgives sinners. Look how Jesus answers their questioning hearts. He says in the second half of verse 8, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up your pallet, take up your pallet, and walk? Now, it's not a matter, Jesus isn't talking here about the, the difficulty of verbalization. He's talking about the difficulty of verification. This isn't a tongue twister. This isn't merely just saying things. This is, this is saying a truth and then being able to back it up. One can easily say your sins are forgiven and nobody knows whether or not you're telling the truth. But if one says, get up, take up your pallet and walk, well then the authority of your words becomes immediately apparent or not, verified by whether the man gets up and walks out or whether he is impotent and stays lying there. And I think one thing that made this more dramatic is, is this paralytic was probably well known by all those in the room. Capernaum was a small town. And... Um, Paralytics oftentimes sat by the road and you saw them in begging here back and forth probably what this man was to earn some money. It wasn't like Jesus was this traveling evangelist, con man, who brought his, his uh, traveling crew with him, those who had feigned sickness, you know, wheeling up to the conference in a wheelchair. Like, oh, I'm, I'm sick. And then the, the evangelist, healer, heals this man. And this man gets up from his wheelchair and walks away and then, then leaves, only to go to the next town to be healed again. This wasn't the case at all. I, I think this man was probably well-known. And if not, at least you could probably see he was a, a genuine cripple. I mean, a mere look at his legs would probably say, those are some deformed legs. He, he, he's not walking. I think it was obvious to everybody that this man couldn't walk and so, Jesus does the more difficult that He might verify He's able to do the easier. Verse 10, that's what it's about. But so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And here's the whole deal. He's saying the Son of Man, that is Christ, foreshadowing, uh, even chapter 10, verse 45, foreshadowing who exactly Jesus is. He is the Son of Man. Foreshadowing this. He says, so you might know that I have the authority here on earth. It's tangible. It's touchable to forgive sins. This is why He said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your pallet and go home. And He got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they all were amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Alright, picture with me this movie of this event. Okay, I'm, I'm just going to describe the movie scene to try to maybe help the drama of this here. Jesus says, verse 11, to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet and go home. At that point, all the background music which was there dims real quiet. You can hear a pin drop in the room. All is silent. And the camera then begins to, to pan to the faces of those who are in the room. 
you know, kind of flash of a face and flash of another face and flash of another face as everyone's attention is riveted upon this crippled man. The, the camera would then focus upon the, the paralytic who's sitting there on his pallet looking up at Jesus. And, and Jesus, it would show a, a view from the paralytic to Jesus as Jesus is looking down upon this man. And then the camera maybe fades out and looks up and sees the four guys eagerly looking through the hole that they had made at what exactly is going to happen with this paralytic. And the camera goes back now to this paralytic who, who then looks down at his legs and the camera follows his face right down his body right to his crippled, gnarled legs. And his legs soon begin to twitch and to quiver. And, and pretty soon, like a newborn cult, Colt, this, this man stands up with wobbly legs. Jesus is there right beside him, but doesn't give him a helping hand at all. And he stands up, and once he gains his footing, he, he steps off the pallet they carried in the house, and then and kind of with his legs trying to still figure about it, he, he picks up his pallet, puts it underneath his arm, and then begins to walk out into the crowd. And as so he's walking out, yes, his place is crowded, but he's the center of attention as he starts to, to walk out. The crowd shifts to to let him pass by. And once gone, then the attention would turn to the people who would initially be in shock. Just that the place was, was all quiet until he starts on his way out. And then chaos would erupt and people would be giving praise to God, singing their Jewish hymns like, uh, like, in the presence of your people, I will praise your name. For alone you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Lie, 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 lie. And they're just excited. And you can just hear this place. And people are shouting, Hallelujah, what power this man has. This is amazing. We've never seen anything like this. Can he really forgive sins? This must be the Messiah. And this house is in an uproar. And then the camera shifts outside. And his friends, this man's four friends are coming down the stairs, this paralytic are here, and, and they, they join up with the, the singing and the commotion in the house, kind of in the background, a little more quiet. And these guys kind of run, skip, walk quickly right by the camera, just laughing and giggling and shouting for joy at what great things God has done for them. And then it fades out. That's what was happening in that whole setting. And the text is a joyful text. It says that Jesus forgives sinners. He proves it by healing this paralytic. And all were amazed and giving praise to God is what it says there in verse 12. Saying they've never seen anything like this. And I suspect that though not everyone in the house was so joyful, I suspect that those people who are reasoning in their hearts saying He's blaspheming still had that same scowl on their face. Amidst all this joy, I think these men were still not too happy. I say this because the resistance in verse 6 and 7, and because it wasn't the people who were grumbling, it wasn't the people who were questioning Jesus that He was forgive, able to forgive sins. It was the religious leaders who were finding fault. And we just see that's the whole context here. Chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, I'm sorry, they, they find fault with Jesus eating with sinners. Chapter 2, 15-17. These are the same ones who are going to question Jesus for, for not fasting like everyone else does. Chapter 2, verse 18. These are the ones who are going to protest at the disciples for picking and eating grain on the Sabbath. These are the ones who are going to harden their hearts to see if Jesus will heal on the Sabbath so they might accuse Him. And these are the ones ultimately that went out and began conspiring with the Herodians as to how they might destroy Him. 
And I think this event here, the healing of the paralytic, demonstrating the forgiveness of sins that Jesus has, was just the beginning of a long conflict throughout all the Gospel of Mark with Jesus and the religious establishment of the day. This just kind of sets it all up. The person of Jesus coming into focus. He's the Son of Man. He's the Messiah. He has power to heal. Power to forgive sins. And the scribes and Pharisees and religious leaders of the day hated it. We see this developed in the next few stories. Before we move on, let's just think about that. This text teaches us that Jesus forgives sinners. Do you find that to be good news? Good. This is great news that Jesus forgives sinners. Uh, earlier I quoted Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4. If you would mark iniquities, O Lord, who would stand? Listen, none of us would stand. We would be consumed by the wrath of God. We can be consumed by the holiness of God. When um, Isaiah was there standing before the throne, when God was high and exalted, he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. But the good news is, is that there is forgiveness with God. There is forgiveness with Jesus. In fact, the whole point of the text is that you might know that there is forgiveness of sins. Right? Verse 10, So that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I'm going to heal this guy. And this miracle is just a, a proof that Jesus was right there on earth, had ability and authority to forgive sins. As some one commentator said, forgiveness is no longer something far away, but something to be accepted right here on earth. He is right there among you, forgiving sins. Forgiveness is real. This is good news. I just exhort you to believe it. By the grace of God, through faith, Jesus forgives us of all our transgressions. That is good news. That is the Gospel. It's the best we have to offer. That's why we gather. That's why we read God's Word. Because God has redeemed us indeed. He forgives sinners. Let's go to my second point. Not only does Jesus forgive sinners, Jesus pursues sinners. We see this in verses 13 through 17. Let's pick it up here in verse 13. And He went out again by the seashore. And all the people were coming to Him and He was teaching them. This is just a change in geography here. He left the city of Capernaum went out to the seashore. Now, if you remember from last week, the synagogue in Capernaum, I said, was just a few, 50, 100 feet, 150 feet maybe from the Sea of Galilee. And so as he went out, he went, he went out to the sea. And we don't know if he just stayed there, just right outside the, the Capernaum or right there on the edge of Capernaum. Maybe he went up and down the beach, up and down for a while. Crowds were coming to him. That's a change of, of location. But Mark tells us that Jesus... While he was on his way out, something happened. He, he passed this tax booth. And there was a man sitting in the tax booth. His name was Levi. Who's also his other name. Who knows his other name? His name is Matthew. The tax collector. One of the twelve disciples of Jesus. And verse 14 reads what happened as Jesus was going out to the seashore. And as he passed by, he saw Levi the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. And we see here echoes from chapter 1, 
When Jesus called Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were fishermen. They were there with some of them, James and John, with their father mending their nets. They were out there and engaged in business. Called them and they too followed Jesus. Levi had a little bit different occupation. He was a, a tax collector, but he was doing his business as well right when Jesus called him. So imagine Jesus coming to your workplace. Whether it's at J.L. Clark or whether it's in your office or whether that's the John Deere shop or you know, whether it's at UPS or whether it's in your office or your warehouse or wherever you work. He's coming into your workplace. He calls these people out of their workplaces to come. A fisherman in Jesus' day was a noble profession. It was a blue-collar profession. It was a, a profession of much labor, but it was very accepted. And in those days, provided much fish for the people to eat, like a farmer. A farmer is very good occupation. A tax collector, on the other hand, totally different. A tax collector was not a respected um, profession. Differences with fishermen. Fishermen worked outside. The tax collector worked inside. He was a white-collar profession, if you will. And uh, it was a despised profession in those days. The reason really is simple because a tax collector was considered to be a traitor. A traitor to Israel. They, they worked closely with the authorities, Roman authorities, and they worked to collect taxes from the Jewish people so as to give to the Romans to support this government which is oppressive to the Jews anyway. Profession worked like this. Tax collectors would bid for their rights to collect taxes in a given region of the Jewish people. And they would tax that and then, then give it to, the, to those in charge, the Romans in this case. For, for instance, let's take Levi. He's a tax collector in Capernaum. I'm not sure if he's a head of tax collector. Maybe he's working in cahoots with somebody who is a tax collector. But at some point, someone made the bid to uh, the Romans. So there are a thousand people in the city. 200 homes in the city. I, I think I can get I, 10 denarii. I think I can get that much from me. 2,000 denarii. That's going to be my bid. And so maybe different tax collectors, different people put their bid in. 2,000 denarii. Having the bid accepted, the tax collectors then would owe the Roman government 2,000 denarii. So they're going to give that money over the course of a year to the Roman government. But the tax collector had total freedom then to collect however many taxes they wanted to collect, as long as they gave to the government 2,000 denarii. Anything above that amount? So suppose they actually brought in 3,000 denarii? That's a lot. That goes into their coffers. And so the, the tax collectors were gougers of people, often rich people, but they derived their wealth from gouging the, the Jewish people. And you have to realize in those days there's no tax code say praise the Lord in some regard. It's not this big, confusing thing. But on the other hand, it meant that the tax collector had sovereign authority over what he thought people owed. And, and tax collectors were good with people. They could discern, okay, see the riches of someone's house. And if someone was particularly rich, they could get more from them and maybe gouge them. If they, if they uh, discerned, I think he can give a little bit more. I would push them until they're just right at the edge and then be able to be satisfied with that. Always always on the edge with people. These were bullies, if you will, who demanded money from people so they could give it to the government. Now, nobody knew exactly what their books were and nobody knew if they were collecting way too much, which they most often did. If someone refused to pay, then the tax collector had authority from the government to come and get the people. 
We don't have an equivalent position in our society today, but maybe as I was thinking, here, here's the equivalent position. The leader of a gang is sort of what this is with um, authority behind them, with force behind them. Sometimes in gangs, you have people who are going to protect the neighborhood. And so they'll go around and elicit funds from all the shopkeepers and all the homes and all the people so that they get money so that they pay them because we're going to protect you. And if you don't pay that money, bad things are going to happen to you. Like my gang of hooligans are maybe going to come and break your windows. And maybe in supreme cases, you're going to face death. It's basically blackmail. If you refuse to pay the tax, there's force coming behind it. And that's really what was happening here in Israel. And these were the types of people the tax collectors were. They were known far and wide as sinners, traitors against their people. And that's my point. Jesus pursues sinners. He pursues gang leaders. He pursues blackmailers. He pursues notorious sinners like Levi. And notice... In verse 14, he didn't wait for Levi to come to Jesus. Jesus went out after Levi and called him to say, follow me. Notice here, I find Jesus pursuing him. Maybe he's not pursuing him directly and all, but, but he's the one who took the initiative. And so likewise, that's what Jesus does in his pursuit of sinners. And, and just so you know, in our salvation, it's God who took initiative in our salvation. It's not we who took initiative to Him. That's how God has saved us. And likewise, that's what Jesus does. And that's what we ought to do. We ought to pursue sinners. Not merely wait for them to come to us, but pursue them and speak with them and talk with them. Well, the pursuit of sinners really continues in verses 15 through 17. Look at verse 15. And it happened that He was reclining at the table in the house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and His disciples. For there were many of them and they were following Him. A good question at this point. Okay, whose house was Jesus at now? He was at Peter's house earlier. And I think verse 15 gives the clue. It was happening that as He was reclining at the table in His house. Who's His referring to? Levi. He's at Levi's house. Levi become a follower of Jesus and Levi then invites his friends to come and dine with him in the house. Jesus says, sure. You have a party? Count me in. I'm there. And you say, who was there? Verse 15. Many tax collectors and many sinners. Where'd they come from? They come from the street? How'd they get there? Who were who these people? You know, who were they? Does anyone know? Anyone can I guess? Huh? They're friends of Levi. Levi was a tax collector, and you know who the friends of tax collectors were? Other tax collectors and other quote-unquote sinners. Other people who would engage in their shenanigans. Or other people who wanted to get rich off of uh, the tax collector's money so as to pay them other favors to join with them. Because this is the reality. When someone gets saved from their sin, there's oftentimes there's a whole world of sinful friends as well. And that's what Levi was doing. Levi said, I'm following Jesus now. Jesus, can you, can you maybe come speak with my friends? And so, Jesus came and spoke with His friends, those He associated with. And Jesus, seeing the opportunity to speak with His friends, naturally said, of course I'll be there. I've heard this called before a Levi party. Okay? It's a Levi party. Someone gets saved, converted to Christ. He begins to meet, bring His old friends to meet His new friends. And opportunities for the Gospel abounds. And 
And then what happens is, just a follower of Christ, there begins to be a natural division because followers of Christ are different than the followers of the world. There's a different mindset, there are different values, there are different lifestyles, different goals in life, but not at first. Not at first when someone comes from this culture follows Jesus. They don't understand all the implication. They, they haven't been sanctified in their life. They haven't learned a church yet. And so they, they bring these people along. If you have an opportunity to go to a Levi party, I would encourage you to go to the Levi party best place to be. It's what Jesus did because He was pursuing sinners. He was glad to go. He saw the opportunity. And He knew that His days with Levi's friends would soon close. That's why I want to seize the day while there was an opportunity. By God's grace, the efforts of Jesus were successful. Look what it says here. There were many of them at the end of verse 15 and they were following Him. Many of Levi's friends were there and following Jesus as well. Note that Jesus didn't go and engage in their sin. Rather, I think that what Jesus did when He was in the midst of Levi's friends, He spoke what He preached in chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the Gospel. Listen, i got good news. The kingdom of God is here and you need to repent and turn and believe in the Gospel. That's His message. And when Jesus went out, there were lots who followed Him then. They were repenting and believing. Now, you need to know this. It's totally different than what the religious elite would have done in the day. Look at their reaction in verse 16. And again, we start seeing the rub between what Jesus does. He pursues sinners. He forgives sinners. There's the rub. He pursues sinners and there's the rub. Verse 16, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that He was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to His disciples, that's how confrontation goes, oftentimes they talk with someone else rather than confronting Him directly, why is He eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? Because see, the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, would never associate with a crowd such as this. They would consider it below their dignity to be with sinners and tax collectors. But not so, Jesus. Jesus knew full well that they're the ones that needed Him. And I would say that the the reaction of the Pharisees is the reaction of many righteous people today. Righteous people know the ways of God. Righteous people are righteous and holy. They know to keep themselves from the stain of the world. 1 John 2.15 They can quote it for you. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. So I'm not going to associate with those people because they're the sinners of the world. And they might influence us badly. And we're going to stay away from them. And we're going to look down upon them because we're righteous. And I would say, Rockefeller Bible, this is our danger. This is our danger. There is a danger certainly being influenced by them, but our danger is that we won't even associate with them. We won't even come near them. We won't even speak to them. We won't even love them. We'll keep our hands off just like the Pharisees. And then when you see someone associate, like, why are you doing that? With these comments come the mounting hatred. We're going to see these righteous people complaining at the practices of Jesus which aren't quite orthodox. How quick the righteous are to complain at the practices of of others when they don't meet up to their standard. We're going to see that in weeks to come. But Jesus puts everything in perspective, He says. Jesus said, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus said, 
The tax collectors and sinners, they're the sick ones who need healing. And I'm a physician. I didn't go to you, righteous Pharisees. You guys don't need any healing. You're okay where you are. But they need healing and I'm the divine physician. I'm going to go and I am going to help them. William Barclay, the commentator, said it well. The one person for whom Jesus could do nothing is the person who thinks himself so good he does not need anything done for him. But, the one person for whom Jesus can do everything is the person who is a sinner and knows and knows it and who longs in his heart for a cure. People who are sinners, people who don't know, they know they need a cure. They know they need help. I, I remember a, a few years back um, meeting up with a whole high school friend of mine. And I can't remember if I told you this story before. I probably have. He was two years younger than I. We played basketball together. I didn't know him really well, but I knew him some. Um, and in high school, he said, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't on drugs all the time. That's what he said. He said, I was only on drugs when I was awake. That's what he said. He told me before about being in Mr. McLaughlin's math class and I don't even know the term of it, but snorting and getting high right there in the classroom. His dad was an absent dad. He was a wealthy dad giving him all the money he needed to supply his habit. Just awful. Went off to school and um, he became a Christian. And by God's grace then uh, came to love Christ, became a pastor. Then I think now he's, he's, he's quit the pastor. Now he's being a lawyer supporting the church where he is. And um, I remember him having a conversation with us at our dinner table one time, and he said, you know, Steve, I think about my life. My life's no miracle. My life was a total wreck, and I needed somebody to help, and I, I found Jesus. He said, Steve, but your life is a miracle because you've grown up in a good, solid home. You don't need anything. Why did you turn to Jesus? kind of gives you a perspective, church kids, about your own testimonies. You realize that it is the grace of God. You're in, you're in good homes and, and you're being raised right. And it's going to be God's grace that shows you your need. And, and these righteous Pharisees, they, they felt they had, had no need. But Jesus said, these folks, they know they have a need. They see they have a need. And they're the ones who need the healing touch. And I'm going to go often and I'm going to go and touch them. And so here we see Jesus pursuing Levi. We see Jesus pursuing His friends. And now I just say this, what about you? Are you a pursuer of sinners? Now I'm not talking about being like them. I'm talking about pursuing them for the Gospel. How about this? When you see those who have no religious values, and all you need to do is go into Walmart and you see scads of people, no religious values, okay? Do you have a heart for them like Jesus? had a heart for? Or do you view them with contempt like the Pharisees did? Or do you even say like the Pharisees, God, I thank You that I'm not like these people because of Your grace to me to make me this way. It's a total sovereignty of God prayer, but totally misses the point in pride. You see people as lost sinners and Jesus pursued them. We need to pursue them. Uh, I recently read an article written by a, a I don't know, famous blogger, I'm not sure what you call it, Tim Challies. It's a bit long, but it helps to, I think, put some things into focus for us. This, this, is, this is our danger. Okay? Now, if, we, if I was at a different church, and our problem was we had a lot of worldly influence coming into the church, I, I might say, you know what, we need to get away from the world. But that's not our problem. Our problem is that we're filled with a bunch of homeschoolers, and we're away from the world. We need to have a heart to go for the world. 
why I'm preaching this to you. Here's, here's what he wrote. It's called The Enemy Next Door. It's kind of long, but I'm closing my message with this. The Enemy Next Door. He says, I grew up in a Christian culture in which very little evangelism took place. How little? Well, the first believer's baptism I ever witnessed was my wife. She was my girlfriend at the time. And that was when we were 18 or 19. It was the first time our church had ever baptized an adult. And what's more, it was the first time most of the people who attended the church had ever seen an adult get baptized. A few years after my wife's baptism, we moved away from the town we'd grown up in so we could be closer to my place of business. In the past decade, we have been members of two different churches that place much greater emphasis on reaching the lost. We have seen many, many people come to faith, including several who are now close friends. We've seen lives altered dramatically and have seen more baptisms than we can count baptisms in churches and rivers and pools and a really big, ugly aluminum tank. Think horse trough, probably. We've shared in the joy of seeing people profess their faith by being baptized. It's truly one of the greatest joys of any church. Over the years, I've, I've had to reflect on what made the churches attended as a child and a teenager so ineffective at evangelism. And what are the reasons? And while there are several reasons I could provide and of varying importance, there's one I really believe stands at the foundation of the rest. These churches often regarded the unbeliever as the enemy. Of course the church would never articulate that belief, but it seemed to be deeply rooted. This attitude manifests itself in many ways. One of the clearest ways was among the children of the church members. They would rarely, if ever, be allowed to encourage a player and even interact with unsaved children in the neighborhood. I knew an urban missionary whose children were confined to their backyard were forbidden for playing with other children. The church children were not allowed to play with other children lest they become corrupted by their worldliness. My observation was that this approach failed and failed badly. First, the church was not faithful in its calling to take the Gospels of the world. They preferred to exist in an enclave safe and from safe from outside influences. Second, and I think parents hear this, second, and ironically, the children developed a fascination with the world. I believe this was in large part because access to the outside world had been denied them and they had never really seen the pain and heartache and the inevitable results of forsaking God. The world can look awfully attractive until a person sees the results of giving himself over to it. Third, the parents were prone to ignoring worldliness in their children. I, I know that I saw more drugs, more drinking, more disrespect, and more awful behavior in the Christian schools I attended than I did in the public schools. I just had a testimony there. My worst experience was being around a Christian school rather than being around a secular school. Because it's so easy and the kids are very worldly. Suppose in a secular school, kids were worldly, they knew it. Yeah, it was awful bad, but they were lost. We have professing kids who say they're, they're saved and acting like the lost. That's worse. No, that's not true. That's not every school. That's not every... I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. That's my experience. This isolation simply did not work. What I saw was that we do not need the world to teach us worldliness. Worldliness arises from within. Mark 7. The attitude that was modeled by my parents was far different. They took the opposite approach and we, their children, were always encouraged to make friends with the children in the neighborhoods we lived in. We saw many children and parents come to faith this way. Many others 
have not become believers, but they received a clear presentation of the Gospel so that they are now without excuse before God. And regardless of whether or not these people came to faith, we gained a good many valuable friendships. Mom and Dad did not do this because they regarded the folks in the neighborhood as a project, but out of genuine love, concern, and appreciation for these people. The person next door was not an enemy, but a person who was just unsaved. And my parents were not too many years, if my parents had been not too many years before, the person next door was someone in desperate need of a Savior and they intended to give everyone the opportunity to meet the Savior through them. My parents were not afraid. They did not hide us away from the world. They allowed us to see sin and the effects of sin. They allowed sin's mystique to be destroyed. They allowed us to see unbelievers acting like unbelievers. And when we saw difficult things or shocking things, they taught us that the wages of sin is death. We saw this not in the abstract, but in the reality. Sometimes worlds clashed. There were a couple of times when my sisters brought friends to church, friends who were unsaved, but were showing interest in the Gospel, only to have them mocked or scorned. One little girl was scolded and had her ear flicked by the woman in the pew behind her because she was not able to sit still throughout the service. A friend of my sister brought to church was openly mocked by the children of the church, openly mocked by the children of the church, because he had dyed blonde hair and an earring. He never returned, as far as I know, never expressed openness to the gospel after that time. I truly believe, after many years of reflection, that the heart of the problem in these churches was in their attitude towards the unbeliever. The person next door was the enemy. He was a person to be feared for what he might do to the family and the children in particular. He was someone to be regarded with distrust and suspicion rather than with love and sympathy. The irony is this, that when we protect ourselves from the enemy, we're prone to take our eyes off the real enemy and we allow him to slip by unnoticed. We are not waging war against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The real enemy is not next door. The real enemy is our own sinfulness and the worldliness that continues to try to manifest itself in our lives. The real enemy is spiritual, not physical. The real enemy and the most dangerous enemy is within. Now, I say that because I fear I'm unbalanced. Because I am protected. And one, one of the things that's been hardest for me when I went for the secular workforce to be in a, a pastor is the number of my non-Christian acquaintances went drastically down. Very much difficult for that. And I feel like our danger as a church is maybe this. We can have our holy huddle, but a holy huddle is not going to last very long. Soon, if, if we just gather around ourselves and say, here we are, you know what's going to happen? We're going to start fighting against each other. We forget our mission outside. God's doing wonderful things here at Rock Valley Bible Church, and there's much here for us to enjoy. And I say, let's enjoy this community we have, for sure. Amen. But how easy is it for us, especially in this society, which is going increasingly more and more secular all the time, which has a government totally out of control, how easy it for us to become like the Pharisees to think that we've got it all right and we despise everybody else and we just speak down about everybody else rather than realizing that we too are sinners saved by the grace of God. That's why this, the Gospel needs to stay central in all that we do. And let me just ask you, when you look out on your neighbors in your neighborhood, do you view them as enemies or do you view them as people who are lost who need to be loved and cared for and shown a Savior? 
Do you have a heart to see them saved? Do you seek to love your Do you know your neighbors? Now, I know that there are dangers. And, and, and parents, if, this, if you need to protect your kids from the bad influence that's happening at a home, by all means, you protect your kids. Don't ever sacrifice for your kids for the sake of evangelism. I'm not talking about that. But when your kids are right and they, you are modeling for them what love of Christ is and you put them out in the world with bad influences, it might not be such a bad thing. Our experience has been this. We, we don't have a lot of neighborhoods in our home, but I remember, boy, Chris and SR especially, remember I'm thinking about four and five years ago, you know the names of the kids. Who are they? Michael and Jennifer. And they would come and knock on the door. Can SR play? And uh, we had a rule that we're not going to let Michael and Jennifer out back on our, on our half pipe in the backyard unless our kids are with them. And uh, how many times did I tell you guys, you know what, they need Jesus. Play with them, right? And you remember, what, what was the guy's name? Was it Ethan? Was that the guy's name with the, the goth? Finger, Ethan was the guy's name. He had goth fingernail polish and everything. And I, you know what, I, I think my kids loved Christ and the righteousness and knew that and these kids were so messed up and there was such a problem I had to push them to be out with them and constantly push you guys to be with them right and did it hurt you guys I don't think so because they they naturally didn't want to be like but I saw within them fostering a pharisaical attitude like I don't want to be with them and I'm like I don't want you to be with them either but they need Jesus you need to foster a heart that they need help and so get out there and get with them now, that was our circumstance. We had kids strong enough. Maybe if your kids aren't strong enough, by all means, keep them away. But, but don't foster in your kids this pharisaical attitude. Because all you got to do is see what's going to happen to your kids. It's where they're going to be. And don't yourself foster this pharisaical attitude. How easy is it to see? Oh, well, I wouldn't be like that. I'd be like Jesus. Well, be like Jesus then and love your neighbors and pursue them and go after them. What about when... Sinners, quote-unquote, come into our congregation. Are you going to love them? Are you going to help them? Are you going to be patient with them? Yeah, what happens when people come in? They're rough around the edges. What are you going to do? You say, oh, it's not like me. Are you going to love them and be with them and serve them and help them like you do other people? Jesus said, if you love your friends, what difference is that? Even the Pharisees and tax gatherers do that. But it's when you love those who are different from you and you seek to bring them in and help them and serve them, that's when you make a difference. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. He was loving the people for the sake of the Gospel. And that's really my exhortation to us. We who are excluded, let's love people for the sake of the Gospel and trust that God will change them and conform them to the image of the Son where we are seeking to go anyway. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would give us strength. I pray that the strength would come from the fact that You forgive sinners and that we are sinners who are forgiven by grace. And I thank You, Lord, that You pursued sinners for without Your pursuing us, we never would have pursued You. As Jesus said, You did not choose Me, but I chose You. And in that, Lord, we rejoice that before the foundation of the world, You chose us in Jesus And may that stir us, God. You've chosen us to forgive us and to love us and to give us an inheritance. It's a great blessing that we are are going to rule this earth someday. And be priests to our God in heaven. We'll reign upon the earth. And yet, there are so many people in our society, increasing numbers of godless people, 
of no time of day for You. And may we be lights. May we not cover up our light, but may we let our light shine before other people. And so, Lord, I would pray that You would grant us a Jesus-like love which would desire to go and pursue sinners. Not to be like them, but to call them out like Jesus called Levi and his friends out to follow Him. That You would do something here at this church for the glory of Jesus. God, we need Your strength. This is not easy. This is hard. The easy thing is to stay away and cloistered. But God, so power us that we might know how we can be out in a right way that's proper for us and for our family and for our children. Protect us, God, I pray. But we long to see the glory of Jesus shine and go forth the glories of the Gospel. And we just place these things at Your feet. In Jesus' name, Amen.